You're listening to a podcast from the Fred Hollows Foundation, New Zealand. To find out more, go to our website, www.hollows.org.nz. So our guest today on the program is uh, Dr. Judith McCool. She's the uh, professor at uh, the University of Auckland at the School of Population Health. She's the senior lecturer there. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. McCool, can you just talk briefly about your background and what sort of brought you into the space of looking at, at public health in the Pacific? Well, I guess it started, um, I did my PhD about 10 years ago now, or perhaps a bit longer, and looked at um, how young people use imagery, tobacco and imagery, um, and how that sh- in, in films, how they looked at it in films, and how that might have shaped their their smoking behaviour. So I was always interested in young people's health, and um, particularly in the in their media use. And over since that time to now, I guess um, I moved more to from sort of health psychology, which was really the driving kind of theory behind that work I did in my PhD, to moving it more into a sort of population health basis. In terms of my work and the, re- uh, and the research we're doing, that evolved a little later. So it really sort of was how do I translate the work that I've been doing in New Zealand and concerns about New Zealand young people and what was happening in their lives. And as I became more interested in what was happening in the Pacific region, that work sort of naturally translated um, to work with colleagues in the Pacific Islands. Because region. you're dealing with a, a slightly less sophisticated media market. I mean, I imagine that yeah. in New Zealand, young people are, are interacting with a range of different media and a much more sort of regular format, whereas um, in the Pacific, it's, it's slightly more limited. How how yeah. is that sort of coming Well, this is quite world? new work I'm focusing on at the moment, and it is really picking up just what you've described, that there is, um, the assumption is actually it's very limited. Um, and, and for many countries, that's the case. I mean, they're still relying on generator and battery-powered televisions. Um, they call people to meetings using a conch shell, etc. So that that's that still exists, very much so. Um, but also there's been an, a radical shift in terms of access to media. It's about sort of even from in the last five years, really. So, um, for example, cell phone, uh, access to cell phones has just grown enormously. So they deregulated um, telecommunications I think in about 2003, and from that time, the number of providers has slowly increased. It's not similar, obviously, to to higher income areas, but um, it's increased, and um, cell phones have become cheaper. And you know, in some countries, penetration rates are about 90%. So, cell phone technology and access to telecommunications has radically shifted. But also at the same time, they've got these new fibre optic cables going across the region now that enable fast or faster broadband uh, internet access. Um, you know, media from, from all over the world is coming in, so it's really changing, uh, you know, the country, the regions, in terms of the cultural um, and economic influences. For all the sort of increasing sophistication in the way that, that younger people are using media yeah. there, I imagine there's still quite a few obstacles in in the medical system in terms of, you know, how you gather the data and Absolutely. and how that data is compiled and so on. So what were some of the challenges that you faced as you started to sort of take a snapshot of, of, of population health in the Pacific? Well, I think one of the, you've just picked up on a really good point. I mean, we have, so you've got the sort of, as you've described, like these these sort of challenges existing and they haven't really, really changed. So we've got increased technology, increased exposure to, to global media, but at the same time, one of the major challenges for the region is the health systems themselves, quite um, fragile. 
um, are still very heavily reliant on international aid. Um, the countries are still relying on remittances, so you've still got um, very um, low baseline economies. Um, and in terms of, I think, for health area, and uh, and I work predominantly in the, in the chronic disease area, is access to data. So they have surveys go across um, the the region periodically, often run by WHO or SPC, the Secretariat for the Pacific Communities, but they are improving, but there's huge gaps. So it's really hard to plan and prioritise um, for health if you just don't have the data. Like I would struggle to give really clear um, and confident uh, estimates on smoking prevalence in some of the countries in the region, for example. I couldn't give you estimates on hearing loss or um, in many of the countries. So there's lots of areas where there's just it's just a gaps in the data. Um, and so they do collect it, but they've very done very um, infrequently. And then actually pulling that information using that uh, that data to plan and prioritise for health is is very sluggish. It's very difficult. How do you proceed in the in the Pacific countries with being a, a, a white professor from Auckland University and trying not to sort of sort of demand your standards and, and try to get that balance right. What are some of the, oh, the challenges you face in that area? Well, I think, I mean, that that is that will always be a challenge. And I, the way that I've worked and I think the way that I um, hopefully, um, you know, in our teaching in global health is that um, I always think, you know, how would you feel if somebody walked into your house and told you how to run your household? what you should have in your cupboards, how you should organise your house. You just, that would be incredibly um, disrespectful. So I think um, the way that we work um, is you work, what are the country's priorities? We don't come and tell them what their priorities are. So if, if for example, in the area that I'm working in at the moment in tobacco, and we have, there's lots of great ideas, we have lots of evidence of what works to reduce smoking, but actually, that doesn't matter if it's not a priority for that country and if it doesn't fit with their health plans and there isn't that really high level and, and particularly that government sort of support um, and you work very closely and take the time that's required to, to um, develop a, a plan that really fits with their priorities, nothing's going to happen. So that's one thing. It's, it's, it's a very counterproductive way of working, but also it just doesn't work in terms of... Um, the programs that um, are developed lasting, having good community support, it's just not a good way to work. But also on the basis of, of kind of respect and, and human rights and, and health equity, working really closely. So those relationships you build in the region take many years and you look after them forever. Like they are absolutely critical to any sorts of, uh, any sort of developments around new initiatives that might be um, you might be working on together. So um, work we do in Samoa or in Fiji, uh, for example, aren't developed over email and great ideas, would you like this? It's actually developed by sitting down in, in, um, in country with the key people and getting that support and, um, and modifying it and taking the time it, it requires to, to um you know, to get that agreement or, or not. If it's not a priority, it doesn't happen. But how does it work where, you know, if some of these systems are so overburdened with their existing demand, they're kind of reacting yep. to the, the, the daily needs of their people, uh, sometimes there's projects that maybe require a vision that, that, yeah. that, that they're not aware of. How do you kind of 
cajole some of these um, organizations, ministries of health into sort of seeing what's on the horizon yeah. and uh, something like diabetes, which is kind of this invisible threat, uh, which is becoming increasingly visible. How do you you sort of maneuver, uh, bring people to the table, I think well, would okay, be a nicer so the, word. I mean, several things, I think, and, and this is where the data is really important because governments really care, you know, what, what matters um, um, I think enormously is is how much does this cost our country? How much is diabetes going to cost our healthcare system? And the better data we can have, the sort of more robust evidence we have that there is a cost when people get ill, not only in terms of direct costs in healthcare, but also loss of productivity. So they are very important to, um, I guess, uh, work with governments to sort of, I guess, highlight the cost, you know, the importance of an issue. I think the other area, which I think the Pacific is and I um, is is very strong with, is is collective regional approaches to issues. For example, so there's a um, the recent health ministers, Pacific Island health ministers meeting in um, Apia, has come up with a set of very clear agreements across all the region. Twenty two Pacific Island countries and territories um, health ministers meet and discuss what they see are the priorities. And these aren't just immediate; these are longer term goals. So, for example, they want to reduce smoking prevalence in the in the Pacific region to um, below 5% for adults by 2025. So these are long-term goals that require a series of steps uh, to achieve them. So yes, there are absolutely pressing immediate needs and um, and in some settings they completely overwhelm a health system. There's an outbreak of dengue and or um, there's a natural disaster and that completely disrupts um, the focus. But I think the region is, is, uh, has a very clear collective voice on what are the priorities, and certainly for chronic disease, NCDs, um, they are an absolute priority. There are very clear targets around, and they're also supported at the WHO level, so coming down from Geneva to the Manila, Manila uh, Western Pacific Regional Office, and them being really carried out by the Suva office. So there are they're very useful to pull out and go, well, there is an agreement that we're working towards now. They might not, you might not see the benefits of these perhaps policy changes or um, these services in the short term, but over time they're part of the, the, the kind of um, comprehensive efforts that, are, that are, are needed to be put together to achieve that if goal. If we take it back to New Zealand government yeah. policy, New Zealand government policy sometimes uses the measuring stick of well, what's in it for us, what's the economic case yeah. for, for, for us taking action on this particular issue. Yeah. Uh, is it sometimes hard to make that case with some of these issues? It's really hard. It will always be a challenge, I think. Um, I mean, we think from a public health perspective that health is is it. That's the priority. The health of your population is the most important thing a government can do. But of course, governments have the Ministry of Finance, they have the Ministries of um, Economic Development and, and others. So it really requires not just a health focus, but actually that, you know, they talk about uh, cross-government um, initiatives and, and coherency. And I think that's really important. So as much as health people can speak about the economic uh, imperatives, um, the better, I think. I think we need to step outside of, of public health and seeing that as the primary focus and become adept at talking about trade and trade implications on health. And I understand that you're you're slightly more dubious about the effectiveness of, of public health messaging as it relates to some of the, the the issues around diabetes and so on. I mean, is are public billboards the way to go or, or, or cinema advertising? What, what's the best way to well, sort of communicate a message? I mean, billboards are... 
fine. You know, they're absolutely fine. They are large. They are seen by a lot of people. If they, it's it's not so much the medium; it's the message. So having a billboard, um, and hence people notice them. But how you use them for health is is you know there's um, and to. Uh, affect change in attitude and then ultimately in behaviour is, is really complicated and it's not, um, you know, there's some good evidence about what works and what doesn't in terms of health messaging and what media to use. You know, yes, billboards can be useful. You know, I guess one of the things I'm always interested in is, is the enormous amount of, of resource that gets put into uh, health messaging that hasn't been tested. Um, the posters and the stickers and the pamphlets that are produced and, and clog the hallways of, of some of the NGOs and um, you know offices and in, in, in health agencies in the in the region um, because it feels like you're doing something. You're using your resources for a health message. Um, so I can understand why you know that they are produced. But in terms of what impact they have, I, I doubt it's um, a well-researched and there is good evidence of its impact. And for a lot of people, um, they're attractive, they're interesting, but do they affect change? I, I, I'm not sure. And I think we need to, and we talked earlier about the importance of media and how this is changing. And I think there's great opportunity for exploring other media for um, uh, messaging. But ultimately, it's the delivery is one aspect. It's actually what are you asking? What are you asking people to do? What ideas are you presenting? And are they are they salient to the to the population? I mean, enough health messages uh, in the Pacific Islands are written in English, telling people to do something different. Uh, that's a really big ask. I mean, I um, I don't think you know they have much success. I was recently in Suva and I went to the movie theater there and uh, was really surprised by the sort of shock messaging from uh, some of the diabetes campaigns from the Ministry of Health where they showed amputations and, you know, some really graphic, graphic images. And then the very next ad was for for Coca-Cola. And so in that sort of saturated advertising space, um, you know, are there – are you working with people to kind of help shape those messages and sort of gauge the effectiveness or are they just kind of throwing things out hoping? that it's going to have an effect? I, I think the latter at the moment. I do think that they are um, hoping that if you tell people what to do, they will do it. Uh, I think if you think, you know, if you show messaging uh, messages and images um, about what might happen if you develop a disease that will change behaviour, and, and there is some evidence for that. I mean, the graphic warning labels you have on cigarette packs all the evidence and the research that's gone into it is actually those images are the larger the image and more graphic the image. They're very powerful, um, but they're very targeted to people holding a cigarette pack who are about to have a cigarette, so they're very, very specific. Um, generic messages screened before a movie um, on on diabetes. Again, I'm not sure. There's been very little. I think there's lots of ideas and lots of so-called sort of innovation around trying to change behaviours, um, not just in the Pacific, but everywhere, but actually evaluating what actually does make a difference and what components and why is, is still not very clear. And as you say, that, and particularly young people, the research we've done with young people in health messaging and nutrition messaging is that they're very aware of these hypocrisies, this complete disjoint between the, the ad for, you know, um, diabetes and then their, you know, advertisement for Coke. I mean, they would see that as completely hypocritical, very confusing, and um, so they're just not 
passively absorbing these and then going, okay, I need to change my behaviour. Health messaging has to be incredibly well done because it is competing with the likes of Coca-Cola, who are, you know, these guys are experts at, at, at identifying what motivates populations to do things, such as purchase their product. Public health is, is 10 steps behind in this area, and we try to emulate some of that social marketing strategies, but... I'm not sure if we've quite got there yet. And the foundation recently worked with some stars from Shortland Street. Can yeah. you talk about the effectiveness of, of recent work that you've done with using sort of that, that star power of yeah. Shortland Street in the Pacific, specifically in Fiji? Oh, I think it is enormously powerful. And I think they are, I mean, Shortland Street is great. I mean, they came um, to an, we had a symposium a few months ago um, where we invited them, the writers from Shorten Street, to come in and uh, join in a discussion around the role of entertainment um, in health messaging. And they were very open to building in storylines that um, are very uh, responsible in terms of uh, accuracy in the messaging. Um, what I also find interesting, so there was a study of recent, uh, a few years ago, conducted by a um, professor from Harvard Medical School looking at the impact of Shortland Street on body image amongst young Fijian girls. And the flip side, too, that's potentially sort of strong health messaging is actually it can also flip the other way. So what she found actually was the girls who were very um, avid followers of Shortland Street had much more, uh, had far greater concerns about their body size. They wanted to be slim. Um, they wanted to emulate and were um, interested in, in the images um, around um, body size and that was represented in Shortland Street, which was quite unexpected because it's not particular to the Pacific culture to be the slim um, aesthetic. So that was something, that was the first piece of work that I've actually seen looking specifically at Shortland Street and its impact. But Turning it the other way, I think because it's so um, widely you know, watched and it's got a lot of, um, for various reasons, for complete escapism to uh, you know, a window into another world, into New Zealand, where a lot of uh, Fijian families have, have extended family anyway. So it was a, a connection to New Zealand. I think it's really powerful. And I think, but what the writers, what you need to do is get health people involved at that writing because the accuracy and the consistency of those messages are really, really important. But no matter how well crafted it is or how well informed yeah. it is, isn't it undermined if the very next ad that people see after a diabetes message is for Burger King or for Coca-Cola? I mean, that's but that's that's the environment we're living in. It's really, really hard. We're constantly competing. The minute I walk out of this this studio. Uh, the messages are completely in contrast to what we've been talking about here. And, and so I think, you know, that is um, that brings in another issue around um, health literacy um, and, you know, working with our young population so they can see and interpret what's going on. Um, you know, there's various sort of studies around the impact of that. I think it is very much the world that um, we're in. It's about being able to cut through, um, um, you know, the chaos that's out there in terms of imagery. And um, But the, the more that entertainment media can portray health issues accurately um, in a way that's... Um, emotionally kind of relevant to people and they connect with is really powerful. And you've been operating in this space for the better half of, of a decade. Mm. Uh, what, and the, the sort of the proliferation of media and the sort yeah. of saturation of images is, is increasing both from a, a corporate point of view but also from a, uh, a public health point of view. Are you hopeful about 
the the future? I mean, do you see some positive trends, or, or is it or is it really holding back the the time? Oh, I think I can see some really positive um, changes actually, and I think the more um, again research is absolutely fundamental. So the more we can find the evidence of, for example, junk food advertising in morning or around children's television increases children's awareness, um, recall of of junk food brands, and call you know, and, and their choices of food. There's more strength and support we've got for for um, policy around preventing that. I mean, I think it's around food is a very complex area. It's like tobacco; they're very very strong industries. So we'll always have a battle to try and kind of hold them back. But there is a strong public support for it. It is of no benefit to the public to have advertising. Like they don't love it. No one loves advertising. It's something that the industry is very, very strong at ensuring their rights of of free speech and messaging and corporate, um, uh, you know, practice. But I think as a population, and I certainly look at um, the generation of my children, aged um, eight and eleven, they are far more media sort of critical of the media and advertising than I ever would have been. So I think we've got a, a population that is, yes, far more. Um, immersed in media, they um, are adept at using it, but they're also much more critical of it. And I think we need to be hopeful about that and build those those competencies in young people. I think over time there is going to be increasing kind of outrage amongst um, the public around the aggressive tactics of, of um, large corporations in terms of selling product that is well evidenced to be um, very detrimental to health. Um, but it's not going to be easy, and I think you need really good political support at the highest level, and you need really good evidence to back it up to, to drive that forward. But it doesn't mean it's at all very kind of, you know. I have no media is a, a fantastic tool. I have, uh, I think it's going to be incredibly important in the stories it unfolds. You're listening to a podcast from the Fred Hollows Foundation, New Zealand. Find out more, go to our website, www.hollows.org.nz.